Like Chad said, uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. This morning we're going to start in verse 10. But before we get into it, uh, I just want to pray for our time real quick. Lord, I am very grateful for this season that we have, have been in. Even though uh, we've all faced our collective share of difficulty and discouragement and challenge, Lord, I firmly believe that you are working in the middle and in the midst of this season. I keep coming back to what, what I feel like you spoke to us at the very beginning, that this is not a season of survival, it is a season of revival. So Lord, we, we want to, this morning, we just want to declare together that our ears are open, that our eyes are open, Lord. And if, and if, if we're struggling this morning, I ask that you would help us to open our eyes, that you would help us to open our ears to the reality of your kingdom coming here on earth as it is in heaven, even in the midst of this season, even in the midst of difficulty, especially in the midst of difficulty. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified. Lord, there is something unique about today, and it's not because um, I have anything good to say. It's not because we have a great sounding worship band. Today is unique because your presence is here. Because Jesus, you are here, Lord. Forgive us, forgive me for coming in and treating today like another Sunday. You have something specific that you want to say. So give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear and give us hearts to receive this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you guys know, we are continuing uh, our series through the book of Ephesians. And specifically, uh, in these past few weeks, we've been looking at the reality of spiritual warfare, right? There's a spiritual battle afoot, and every Christian, every believer has been called into the ranks of God's army. And the good news is that we are not defenseless or weaponless in this holy battle, right? Uh, we are not pawns on a cosmic chessboard. Through the cross, God has granted every Christian powerful armor to stand firmly in this battle and resist our spiritual enemy. And so far, we've learned about three pieces of this armor. We have learned about the belt of truth, which protects us from lies, and it supports the rest of the armor, uh, we looked at the breastplate of, uh, breastplate of righteousness, right? The breastplate that protects the most vital and important organs of our identity uh, from the effects of sin and shame. And then last week, Billy taught us about the shoes of peace, which provide us with protection and stability and solid footing as we stand against the wiles of the devil. And as we look at the armor of God, there are a few important aspects that we need to understand. The first is that the armor is God's armor. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 says, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And what this means is because we are in a spiritual battle, we have been given powerful spiritual weapons for the fight. It's important for us to remember that we did not create this armor. Right? This armor has been purchased for us and given to us by God in order that we might be protected. Like any soldier, we have stewardship over it, but it's not ours. It is royal armor. And I don't know about you, but I would much rather have God's royal army armor than my own cheap peasant armor. Right, every like medieval battle scene that you've ever watched in a movie, right? The poor like peasants standing in the front lines, they got like terrible armor. 
It's like made out of wood and leather and all this stuff. And it's like, they're going to die. Like that's, they're, they're kind of doomed, right? But the knights that ride in on horseback, they have the good armor. They have the royal armor. And you know, when you see that character on whatever movie it is, you know that they're going to mess some stuff up. I would much rather have God's armor than my own. Another thing that we need to realize is that the armor points us to and is fulfilled in Jesus. Each piece of the armor has been forged in the finished work of the cross. And every uh, ounce of strength that the armor has comes from the blood of Calvary. And as we adorn Christ, as it says in Romans chapter 13, uh, so we are outfitted with his armor. The next thing we need to understand is that the armor is metaphorical. It's not magical. This is not something that we just conjure up. It's not a hack to achieving victory in life. It's not a cheat code for our lives. Each piece of the armor represents a powerful spiritual reality, which means then, this is our fourth thing, that the armor must be appropriated in order for it to be effective. These spiritual realities must be applied to our lives. The armor has to be put on. And I really believe there's some people who need to hear this today, right? Many of us have been given great spiritual armor, but it's sitting on a shelf somewhere, it's sitting on a shelf in our home. And we're like, that, that armor looks so beautiful up there. But when the enemy comes knocking, when the enemy comes knocking at your door, that armor does not do any good for you if it is not on you. The armor of God has to be appropriated in our lives in order for it to provide protection for our lives. Really, the heart of Ephesians 6, the heart of this section of Scripture, is really about how we as Christians prepare a ready defense against the attack of the enemy using the armor that God has given us. And this morning, we are going to be looking at another piece of spiritual equipment in our arsenal, which is the shield of faith. I'm going to start reading this morning in verse 10. Paul writes, Finally, my brethren... Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And here's our verse this morning. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. This past Sunday night, my friend and I, a really close friend and I, we were out in Ventura Harbor uh, diving for lobster. There are lobster that live in our ocean. They're delicious. Um, in order to get to the lobster, we usually take a kayak out to the outer break wall of Ventura Harbor right there because that's where all the lobster live. And this particular night, uh, we had gone out, we had caught some lobster, and we were on our way back in. Uh, and we were about 20 feet from the shore right there at Mother's Beach, if you've ever been to Mother's Beach. And right as we were coming in, getting ready to kind of land on the shore, our kayak got sideways. And this little wave, just this tiny little wave came, and it just tipped our boat over. Which would not have been a big deal, except for the fact that all of our dive gear was sitting in the boat. And one of those pieces of gear was my $300 dive light, which was not turned on, by the way. 
Remember, it's nighttime. And if you've ever, uh, if you've ever lost any non-floating object in the ocean, you know how hard it is to find anything in that murky water, right? But at night, it is almost impossible to find anything. And so I'm just sitting there going like, it's gone, my $300 investment, it's, it's been gobbled up by the ocean. But my friend was adamant. He was like, no, 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 it's out here. We are going to find it. We are going to find your light. And so we started to scour the ocean floor for any trace of my light. And with each wave that came and every minute that passed, I became more discouraged. I was like, this is pointless. Like, what are we even doing out here? But he persisted. He even started talking to the light. He was like, hey, we're going to find you. Where are you? I know you're out here somewhere. We just got to find where you are. He's so persistent. And uh, even though I was like ready to give up, I really marveled at his confidence that we were going to find my light. And after about 20 minutes of searching, um, we were both kind of ready to throw in the towel. And then I stepped on something. And I reached down into the ocean. I grabbed my light. I lifted it up in the air and let out a roar of joy and relief. And we rejoiced together because we found my light. Now, the point I'm trying to make with that story is that even against improbable, maybe impossible odds, my friend had faith that we would find my expensive light. He had unwavering, unflinching confidence that we were not going to leave the ocean empty-handed, even when I didn't. If our actions had been determined by my faith, I would have been out $300. Because of his faith, because he was so confident, I stood out in the ocean long enough to step on my stupid light. I want us to see this morning that faith is a very powerful thing. And it is uniquely human. We are the only creatures on earth who can have faith in anything. Your dog can't have faith. Your cat can't have faith. Your pet goldfish can't have faith. Only human beings can have faith. Faith is hardwired into our spiritual DNA. We were created to be creatures of faith. You and I were made to believe. Faith is what allows human beings to achieve unachievable things. Faith is what put Neil Armstrong's feet on the surface of the moon. Faith is what allows Olympians and athletes to overcome what look like insurmountable odds. Faith is at the heart of every underdog story that you have ever seen or heard. Without faith, Cinderella never makes it to the ball. Without faith, Sam and Frodo never get to Mount Doom or get to Mordor so that they can destroy the ring. Without faith, Luke never becomes a Jedi and the evil empire continues to reign. Faith is a critical part of our human story. But it's important here that we draw a distinction between faith and Christian faith. Because anyone can have faith in anything, right? You could have faith in the stock market, or the economy, or your political party of choice. You can have faith that your favorite sports team is going to win the league championship. I follow English soccer, and every single club in English soccer, their supporters have a chant about how their team is the greatest team that the world has ever seen. Even if they are terrible, even if they haven't won anything in decades, their fans still show up every match and chant and sing about how their team is the greatest team that the world has ever seen. That's technically faith. But the problem with these kinds of faith is that they are centered around outcomes, right? You have faith in the stock market or the economy because of the outcome that it could have on your bank account. 
You have faith in a president or a political party because of the outcome that it could have on your livelihood. You have faith in a sports team because of the outcome that winning the championship could have on your emotional state. What makes the Christian faith so much different is that the Christian faith is centered around a person, not an outcome. Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ alone is the object of the Christian faith. Jesus is the object of our confidence and our trust. Hebrews 11 uh, says that faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And in the very next chapter, the, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. What that means is that Jesus gave us faith. He is working it out in us, and therefore Jesus is at the center of it. He is the center of our confidence and our trust. And although lesser faiths in this life might be able to get through little parts of life, it is only faith in Jesus that can get us beyond this life. No other faith can outlast the grave. Your mutual fund won't do it. Your political activism won't do it. Certainly your sports team won't do it. Jesus is the only one who can do it because Jesus is the only one who did it. True Christian faith is centered around, fixed on, and directed toward the person of Jesus. Notice I said person of Jesus. And we have to make that distinction because we can so easily treat our Christian faith in the same way that we treat every other kind of faith, right? Based on the outcome that we desire. Based on what Jesus can do for us. And this is a very slippery slope. Right? We can have faith that uh, Jesus is going to bring the financial breakthrough. Or we can have faith that Jesus is going to bring the healing. We can trust that Jesus is going to bring us a spouse or children. And there is nothing wrong with those desires. Right? Who, who wouldn't want financial breakthrough? Who wouldn't want to not be lonely in life? Who would, uh, who would, who would not want to be healed? Right? But these things cannot be the object of our faith. Because sometimes we lose our savings. Sometimes we don't get better. Sometimes we can't have children. Sometimes marriage just isn't in the cards for us. We need a faith that transcends these realities. We need a faith that transcends outcomes and we find it in the person of Jesus, placing our trust and our confidence in the fact that he is good, that he is love, that he is sovereign, and that he never changes. This is the kind of faith that Paul is talking about when he describes the shield of faith. I love that we have this artwork here because it really helps us connect with Paul's audience. Uh, any Ephesian citizen would have been accustomed to seeing the shield of faith as Roman soldiers patrolled the streets and marketplaces uh, this shield uh, is known as a scutum, which is Latin for shield. And it was about four feet tall. It was about two and a half feet wide, a little bit bigger than this pulpit. Uh, and it was a, in a rectangular shape with rounded corners, and it was shaped in this uh, con, uh, convex shape. And it weighed about, two, uh, about 22 pounds. And this shield, the scutum, was widely praised for its effectiveness in battle. Um, and perhaps its greatest advantage was its size, right? The scutum was almost double the size of the shields that the Greeks used, which were uh, rounded shields. 
In fact, the, the uh, shield was, became affectionately known as the door shield because it looks like a door, and it's almost as big as a door. And when standing, that the shield, the scutum, covered uh, nearly all of the soldier's midsection, providing an extra line of protection for the soldier's vital organs. And when crouched, uh, a soldier could completely hide himself behind the shield, uh, making it almost impossible to, to wound the soldier. Uh, when describing the, a battle, uh, the Greek philo- uh, historian, Polybius, he noted that the scutum gave soldiers both protection and confidence, which they owed to the size of the shield. And although the Roman shield provided many advantages to the soldier, uh, it did have a few disadvantages, namely its construction. Smaller shields uh, were typically fashioned from copper or some other kind of strong metal, but in order to offset the size to weight ratio, uh, the scutum was actually made out of wood. Now this left the shield particularly vulnerable to fire. And one of the primary uh, tactics that was adopted against the Roman troops was to take arrows. They would wrap them in cotton or some other fibrous material. They would dip them in tar or pitch, a flammable substance. They would light them on fire, and they would uh, volley them at the Roman infantry in an attempt to break up the battalion and neutralize their defenses. It's not hard to imagine what kind of effect a burning shield would have uh, on an army squadron. We need to remember this morning that each piece of the armor protects us from a specific tactic of the enemy. And Paul is using this imagery of fiery darts, uh, sometimes referred to as flaming missiles or flaming arrows in other translations. He's doing that to expose the tactics of our spiritual enemy. In the same way that soldiers, uh, the enemies of Rome, would fire flaming arrows at the heart of the infantry, so too does our enemy, our spiritual enemy, fire arrows at the heart of the Christian. And these arrows typically take the form of thoughts or feelings, and they have three main objectives. To cause doubt, to bring discouragement, or to create distraction. First, uh, Satan will attempt to fire thoughts and ideas that cause us to doubt the promises and the character of God. He has been doing this as long as the earth has existed, and he is really, really good at it. He's really good at getting us to doubt God, his word, his intentions, and his character. Look how he does this uh, in Genesis chapter 3. We'll have it on the, the screen this morning. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. What transpired that day in the garden was an assault on Eve's faith. Satan was attacking Eve's trust and confidence in God's word and his character. And how did he do it? With a little bit of doubt. Did God really say? 
Is that really what he meant? Did he really say not to eat that? Did God really say not to look at that? Surely he's not talking about Instagram. Did God really uh, say to, to not gossip? It's just a little gossip. Surely it isn't slander. I get a little annoyed sometimes, but surely that's not bitterness. And soon enough, just like Eve, we are partnering with the devil, and we don't even realize it, all because of a little bit of doubt sown by the enemy. And if Satan can get us to doubt God just a little bit, then he can easily manipulate our actions, just like he did in the garden. Or if the enemy can't make you doubtful about God, then he will try to make you discouraged, specifically discouraged about yourself. Sometimes Satan does try to bring discouragement externally in the form of things like financial hardship or relational discord or even a global pandemic. But more often than not, Satan attempts to discourage us internally. Um, And he does this by firing on our identity. Uh, You guys remember the story in Matthew chapter 3. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, and he comes up out of the water, and uh, the heavens open up, and the Spirit of God descends like a dove, and there's this voice that says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then immediately in the next chapter, Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the desert, into the wilderness, where he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, and then Satan shows up. Remember how Satan confronts Jesus, right? He says, if you really are the son of God, then turn these stones into bread. If you really are the son of God, throw yourself off of the temple. Satan loves if-then statements. If your thoughts are dominated by if-then statements, particularly relating to your spirituality, chances are it's the enemy. Satan says, if you really are a child of God, then do this. If you really are a child of God, try harder. If you really are a child of God, do more. Provide for yourself. If you really are a child of God, then you need to perform better. And what is especially cruel is that the moment that we fail to perform, which is inevitable, we will all fail to perform at some point, Satan is always right there to bring accusation against us. And he does it by flipping the equation on us, right? He says, because you didn't perform, because you didn't measure up, because you didn't do good enough, therefore, you must not be a child of God. All of a sudden, our very identity as a child of God begins to unravel before our very eyes as we descend into a discouraging cycle of performance and accusation. Or, If the enemy can't get you to uh, doubt God, and if he can't discourage you, then he will most certainly try to distract you. He will do whatever he can to get your eyes, your mind, and your heart off of what matters most, leaving you vulnerable to a blindsided attack. His arrows uh, might not be aimed at you, but they are aimed around you strategically. News cycles, political ideology, social media campaigns, consumerism, materialism, you name it. Satan so often uses us, uses those things to turn our attention off of Jesus so that he can attack us from the flank. He's like, if I can just get the Christians to spend all their energy ranting on Facebook about politics, if I can just get the Christians to spend all their downtime watching Netflix, If I can just get the Christians to spend all their resources on Amazon, 
And then when our attention is focused on things that are not spiritual, Satan starts to attack the things that are spiritual. Distraction is an effective tactic of the enemy. It might be the most effective tactic because often we don't even realize what is happening because our eyes are turned off of what matters. In all of this, we need to realize that Satan's ultimate goal, his ultimate desire is the destruction of those who belong to God. You have a spiritual enemy. Some people need to hear this this morning. You have a spiritual enemy who is hell-bent on the destruction of your life. He's not a spiritual prankster. He's not even a bully. The Bible calls Satan the tempter, the accuser of the brethren, the father of lies, the wicked one, as it says in our passage this morning. Satan wants nothing more than to see your life go up in flames, and he will stop at nothing to make that happen. He will lie. He will cheat. He will distort. He will manipulate. He will scorch the earth if he has to. In John chapter 10, Jesus says that Satan's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan is smarter than you. He's more cunning than you. He's been fighting longer than you. And in your own strength and wisdom and power, you are utterly powerless to stand against his tactics. Sometimes it's easy for us to be convinced that we're going to know when the enemy attacks. We're like, when the enemy attacks, I will know it. And what we do is we wait for this big, bad, obvious thing to happen when all the while Satan is at work attacking our thoughts, our feelings, and our identity, and we are completely unaware of it. Oftentimes Satan shoots a sniper rifle, not a grenade launcher. And he's an expert marksman. Christian, you and I need help. We need protection. We need a shield. And Paul says that our first line of defense against Satan's destructive arrows is faith. Read our verse again. Paul writes, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can quench or extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, when I think of the primary function of a shield, I don't really think about extinguishing or quenching right? A shield protects, but how does a shield extinguish or quench anything at all? Well, Paul is getting at something much deeper here. You see, uh, the soldiers of Rome actually had a unique strategy to mitigate these flaming arrows that were fired at them. And what they would do is before battle, they would take uh, the skin of an animal or leather, and they would soak that material in water, and then they would wrap their shield in that material. And what that would do is this extra layer of moisture would actually put out the flaming arrows before it could penetrate into the wood. And that would prevent the shield from igniting. And this right here is a massive clue for us as to how we appropriate the shield of faith in our lives. In the same way that a Roman shield was meant to be saturated with water, so too is the faith of the Christian meant to be saturated in the truth of God's word in the presence of his Holy Spirit, and in the fellowship of Christian community. It is a saturated faith that extinguishes the flaming arrows of the enemy. The lies that Satan hurls at us have no fuel to burn when our minds have been saturated with the truth and the promises of God. The anxiety that Satan volleys at us has no room to spread when our hearts have been saturated by the peace that comes from spending time in his presence. The discouragement that the devil fires our way has no room to blaze when our lives are saturated by good, godly relationships with people who remind us of his faithfulness 
in our lives. Men and women who are not afraid to tell us what we need to hear, but always faithful to point us back to Jesus. It's important to realize that the shield of faith is not something we were meant to take up on our own. It's something that we are meant to take up together. The scutum, the Roman shield, was actually designed so that it could connect with the shields of other soldiers. And in battle, uh, a Roman uh, squadron would take up what was known as the testudo formation. Testudo means tortoise in Latin, and it's a very appropriate uh, descriptor. And what would happen is the soldiers in the front line, they would interlock their shields together, which would provide a wall of defense. And then the soldiers who were behind, uh, they would hold their shields up above their heads, making this impenetrable uh, barrier so that their whole infantry would be protected from arrows. And even if one of their members was struck, what they would do is they would actually collapse on the injured soldier and protect him until there was enough availability for him to be extracted from the battle. I want us to see this morning that our shared faith in Christ is like an impenetrable fortress to the tactics of the enemy. And what this means is that we not only have a responsibility to take up the shield of faith on our own, We actually have a responsibility to take up the shield of faith on behalf of our brothers and sisters in Christ. What that means is that your faith is inextricably connected to mine and vice versa. Could you imagine for a second that if uh, you and I were in, in a battle together, if we were in a squadron together, and I just so happened to leave my shield at home? You would not be soaked on that, right? You'd be like, dude, where's your shield? I'm like, well, I, I didn't think I needed it today. No, I have a responsibility to take up my shield of faith for your sake, and you have the same responsibility to take up the shield of faith for my sake. Nor would you be stoked if all of a sudden my super dry shield suddenly caught on fire. That would bring chaos. We have to recognize that we are in the same spiritual battle. We are standing shoulder to shoulder against the same spiritual enemy. Peter would write uh, in 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, resist him, the devil, and be firm in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Our faith matters to one another. We have a responsibility to the people around us to keep our faith dripping wet with the truth of God's word, with the power of his presence and the encouragement of fellow believers. This is one of the reasons why spiritual practices are so important in the life of the Christian, right? We don't say read your Bible more because it's a good line item on your spiritual checklist. We don't say participate in worship because we just like how it sounds when everyone raises their voices because it sounds good. We don't say join a community group because we like putting introverts in awkward social situations. No, no. Spiritual practice is how we appropriate the armor of God in our lives. So if you find yourself wondering, as I often do, why all it takes is that one little comment from your spouse said in that one way, if you're wondering why all it takes is that one little email from your boss or your coworker, if you're wondering why all it takes is that one little search on WebMD, that one little image on, on Instagram, that one little thought of shame or jealousy or entitlement or bitterness, if all it takes is one thing to set your soul ablaze, then chances are you have a dry shield. 
Most likely your faith isn't saturated with the truth, the presence, and the community of God. And I know that might be hard for some of us to hear today. I certainly need to hear it just as much as anyone else does. But if we're unwilling to engage with Scripture, if we're uninterested in the practice of prayer and worship, if we're unenthusiastic about community, then we should not be surprised when the arrows of the enemy lodge themselves in our hearts and our minds and burn out of control. But if that's you this morning, the good news is that it's not too late. It's not too late to pick up your Bible and start saturating yourself in the truth and the promises of God's word. If that's you, it's not too late to start immersing yourself in his presence through the practice of prayer and worship. If that's you, it's not too late to start engaging with other believers and immerse yourself in Christian community. Friends, it is not too late to saturate your faith. Because if a dry faith is fuel for the enemy to have his way in our lives, a faith that is soaked in Jesus will withstand whatever artillery Satan fires against it. And Paul says, take it up. Stand firmly with your faith in hand and resist the enemy. I want to close this morning by reading from Psalm chapter 28. It says, Praise be to the Lord, for he has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and he helps me. My heart leaps for joy and with my song I praise him. The Lord is the strength of his people, a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. We have to remember this morning that our faith is not in our faith. Our faith is in God who is our shield and our fortress. And so to take up the shield of faith is to trust and believe in the one who has authority over Satan. To take up the shield of faith is to trust and believe in the one who is seated far above all rulers and authorities, every spiritual force of wickedness. To take up the shield of faith is to trust and believe in the one who on the cross made a public spectacle of the enemy the one who was pierced for our transgressions so that we would not be pierced by the enemy's arrows of accusation. To take up the shield of faith is to believe and trust in the one with the power to silence every lie, to calm every fear, and to extinguish every accusation. So today, trust in him. Immerse yourself in him. Saturate yourself with him. Put your faith in him. Worship him today. Amen? Amen. Lord, we want to confess this morning that we need help. We need help, Lord. We need protection. And our own efforts... Our own efforts, God, are not enough to protect us from the scheme of the enemy, Lord. But we rejoice today that you have given us everything that we needed. You have given us every amount of protection. Not because we are good, but because you are good. Not because we are strong, but because, Jesus, you are strong. Help us with that. 
Help us with that today, Lord. Help us to immerse ourselves in you today. If that's you this morning, if you feel like you are in a place of dryness, if you feel like your shield is thin and dried up, I want you to, to ask you to do something bold this morning. If you could just raise your hand. If that's you, if you are struggling with this, this, this faith that feels like it's dry and maybe you feel like arrow after arrow after arrow has been hurled at you and, and you, it feels like your life is on fire, I want to invite you to raise your hand this morning. If that's you, just, just raise your hand up. Raise it up high. I see you out there. In a minute, I'm going to pray for you. And there's also somebody here today, I believe, who doesn't have a shield at all. You don't have a shield because you don't yet have faith in Jesus Christ, because you don't know him. And the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. The truth of the gospel is that Jesus gave up his protection so that you could have protection. Jesus gave up his life on the cross so that you could have new life. And if that's you today, if you want to experience new life in Jesus, if you want to experience the wholeness that comes from his love and his grace, if you want to experience the protection that he brings, I want to invite you also to raise up your hand. If that's you, if you want to know Jesus today, I invite you to raise up your hand right now. Raise it up high. I see you. I see you out there. Praise God. Anybody else? Anybody else that wants to know and receive Jesus this morning? Lord, we ask this morning that you would wash over every person here, Lord, especially those who raise their hands. Wash over us with the truth of who you are, Lord. It can be scary for us, Lord, but we want to dive deeply into all that you are. Lord, we're not content with the shallow end. We want the deep end. We want all of who you are. Help us to soak our shield. Help us to soak our faith. Help us to soak our lives in the truth and the power and the goodness of who you are, Jesus. We pray, Lord, that we would find protection and peace and comfort and rest in who you are, Jesus.